Hi everyone, welcome to LWA's Let's Talk Shop, episode three. We have a really special episode coming here today because we have professional race car driver Ken Gushi on our podcast. So my name is Shay Scanlon from the Lexus Western area. I have my guest host, Jake Feinerman. Hi everyone. Thanks so much for having me. Really excited to be here and extremely excited to be interviewing, as Shay mentioned, Mr. Ken Gushi, professional driver for Toyota Gazoo Racing USA. He is the youngest driver to ever compete in the D1 Grand Prix in Japan and the Formula Drift Championship in the United States at 16 years old. Wow. And Ken, we couldn't be happier to have you with us. Welcome, Ken. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, if you want to give us a little... Oh, sorry. If you want to give us a little intro about yourself, how you got into racing. Yeah. Um, so I actually started racing or driving um, for the first time when I was eight years old. Wow. And that was because, yeah, <laughs> my dad was, uh, he was an avid race car driving fan or motorsports fan growing up in Japan. Um, but my parents had me very young at the age of 19. So he couldn't really pursue anything in motorsports. So when we moved here, uh, he had opened up a repair shop, and this was when I was about nine or ten years old. But uh, he let me move, you know, some of the customers' cars around the shop, and then uh, basically gave me a chance to learn how to drive a stick shift, and uh, ultimately get behind the wheel doing some actual racing in a professionally sanctioned racing body. So we started off doing rally first. And- and then uh, we got our foot into drifting. But the reason why we started rally was because for my father, for him growing up, he was always dreaming of driving up the Pikes Peak hill climb. And this is actually kind of interesting because it, I'll, I'll circle the story back to my relationship with Lexus Racing or Lexus USA and Pikes Peak. But for my father, it was a dream to drive up Pikes Peak um, and do a little bit of racing. But uh, because of me, and uh, because of him having kids, uh, he couldn't really pursue that. So I kind of took that challenge and uh, fulfilled it for him on the first race up, which was back in 2007. Uh, I drove his race car that he had built. He was the navigator for that year. Um, but funny story, long story short, I ended up crashing out and didn't finish that race. The very next year, he went back up with that same car that I crashed and ended up taking third place on the open class uh, for the class he was racing in so um, fast forward about five years or or four years in 2012 uh, i had the opportunity to drive for lexus in their isf ccsr which is the infamous uh nurburgring orange colored isf race car that they had brought over yeah yeah, I actually, I actually so, just watched that video of you driving that up uh, Pikes Peak. It looked like a lot of fun. It looked like it wanted to slide a little bit. It looked like it was a good time. It did, yeah. So I've actually had the chance to race that car up that mountain twice. The first time in 2012 and then the second time in 2013. The first time I went up, uh, we had won second place in class. Uh, and then the following year, we got the win in that same class. So. It was a lot of fun, definitely. Like you said, it did want to. It was a little bit tail happy. Did want to go drifting in some of the corners, but we did clean it up in the second year that we went up. And hey, that's right up your alley. Got the win. And I believe that I've also seen some videos of you driving drift cars up Pikes Peak and sliding them all over the place. Yeah. So <laughs> now the following year, after that second 
race with Lexus. I went back up with, uh, at the time of Scion racing, but we had taken our drift car to the mountain and instead of resetting the suspension up for hill climb or road racing, we just kept our drift set up and just put some Hankook slicks on it and decided to take up the challenge. But that year that we went up was quite challenging because the first test session as we got into Colorado Springs uh, at Pikes Peak International Raceway, we lost an engine. So before we before the race week even started, uh, we had a huge mechanical failure. Had to overnight an engine, skipped or we couldn't drive any of the practice days. Couldn't run the qualifying, so they placed us last in the starting order. Um, so I pretty much went up the mountain blind that year with the drift car, not really knowing what to expect on the course conditions or even the tire grip. I ended up just, you know, telling myself, you know, if I make it to the finish line, great. If not, at least I'm going to have fun going up the mountain. So what you saw me drifting up the mountain was just me, you know, having fun. And the the crazy (laughs) part is (laughs) it was a lot of fun. Trust me. The crazy part is even while drifting the corners, uh, we ended up taking third place in the time attack one class, which was a huge success for that car. That's awesome. How do you manage to pull that off? I mean, the competitors must have been <laughs> trying not to slide the car as much as possible. Yeah, here I was thinking that, you know, the car is probably not going to make it up because we had a huge engine failure at that altitude. And air is pretty thin up there, so our turbochargers are working extra hard to pump, you know, more air into the engine. Um, and actually, halfway through the race, the engine started to overheat. I lost all coolant. There's all these warning lights blinking at me, the car's beeping, telling me to, you know, cool off, but I kind of just ignored that, continued drifting up the mountain, and somehow managed to win third place. Hey, that's a true race car driver right there, ignoring the uh, flashing lights on your dash and just going for all that <laughs> pace. I appreciate that. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Did you have an opportunity to drive Pikes Peak when it was half tarmac, half gravel, or was it all tarmac by the time you got there? I did. So back in 2007, they had already started paving the mountain, but it was about 40% gravel and maybe 60 or a little bit more than 60% tarmac. That's a good time. Yeah. So that story sounds crazy right there at Pikes Peak. I want to know what has been your most memorable win. (laughs) Um, Well, definitely taking the win with Lexus Racing in 2013 up Pikes Peak was a huge achievement of mine only because it was a dream of my father's to go up there and race and you know perform and he did the year after I crashed out his own car um, in 20 2008 he got on the podium so that was good enough for him but to top that and actually win a class for you know a brand like Lexus was a huge huge achievement outside of that for drifting um my home track is actually about 10 minutes from where I live, and it's called Irwindale Speedway. But when I first started drifting back when I was about 12, 13 years old, they used to host drifting events in the parking lot at Irwindale Speedway. And this was before they even allowed us on the big bank or the big course. So I've always considered Irwindale you know, a home course for mine. And you know, all my friends, family are really all close by. So every year that we have Formula Drift there, they come out to support me. And in 2019, um, I actually managed to pull off a win there in the season finale with Formula Drift uh, in my old 2019 
Toyota 86. So oh. that was a lot of fun, just being surrounded by family, my friends, of course, my sponsors and team. That's awesome. How do you celebrate your wins? Uh, well, that was a long celebration because obviously being the last event of the year, I had pretty much five months to celebrate uh, before <laughs> the next season started. But unfortunately, you know, the following year was 2020 and that was COVID year. So that got pushed back to September. So my celebration went all the way from October to the following September. So almost a year <laughs> of celebration. sounds like a great celebration. And you, and you mentioned that you were driving the 8.6. I believe that your father Correct. taught you to drift in a Toyota AE86, which is, of course, is pretty made pretty famous yep. by Initial D and in the Japanese to, toge scene. I wanted to ask yeah, you. Yeah, so. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. My story in drifting is actually pretty interesting as well. Uh, while we were doing some rally racing back then, we started watching this anime that you just mentioned, Initial D. Hmm. And, you know, the story was quite intriguing because you have this father who owns a tofu shop and he makes his son deliver the tofu in the middle of the night uh, with this 1985-1986 Toyota Corolla GTS or, you know, in Japan it's called a Toyota Treno uh, AE86. Coincidentally, we actually had a couple of those cars at the time and my dad was like, hey, that looks kind of fun. Let's, you know, let's go try it out. I know the perfect spot for it. And that was uh, El Mirage Dry Lake Bed, which is about an hour and a half north of LA. So we decided to take that car out and, you know, do a little bit of sliding. And there's nothing to really hit out there besides bushes and tumbleweeds. So it was actually the perfect spot to practice. And that following year was the same year that this one group or organization called Drift Association uh, was hosting these local drifting events at Irwindale Speedway parking lot. So we took the Corolla there and joined them in their festivities and kind of grew from there. So that group ultimately joined with um, Slipstream Global, who brought D1, or D1 Grand Prix from Japan to the States for the first time. And from there on, drifting just got bigger and bigger. But that story is pretty crazy because I started drifting in an A86 and, you know, with the win in 2019 it's almost as if i came a whole full circle starting drifting in an a86 and then now driving for toyota motorsports with toyota because racing in a toyota 86 so it was a pretty interesting story or the way that i came to where i am today is really mind-boggling like it's, it's so crazy yeah that's that's definitely a crazy story and it's awesome to see it come full circle like that and speaking of going from the AE86 to the new 86, I wanted to ask you, do you think that the sport of drifting has changed with the move from those more lightweight momentum-based cars to the high-powered stanced-out cars that we see today? Yeah, I mean, drifting is an ever-evolving sport, I feel like. And every year, even today, the competition gets more fierce. You know, the cars get a lot more horsepower. They get a lot more tire grip. And gone are the days where we used to run 195, you know, 55, 14s with about 60 PSI in the rear tires, drifting AE86s with about 60 wheel horsepower. So it's um, now you see cars with 1,000 horsepower, really high grip tires, um, and proper racing equipment like sequential transmissions, quick change rear ends, fully caged. Um, 
quick release front ends. It's all like actual proper motorsports equipment that we use in pro drifting nowadays. So drifting has definitely changed in the last, you know, even the last couple of years, but definitely in the last 15, 20 years, ever since I first started in that Corolla. When you first were getting started, um, I know Kichei Tsuchiya is known as the Drift King of Japan. Uh, he drove in 86. Was he an inspiration to you? Uh, at some point, he did become an inspiration. Um, but more than inspiration, I guess it was motivation to become someone that was a better drifter than he was. Because to be honest with you, like, yeah, they call him the Drift King because he was one of the drivers that won a race while drifting an A86 completely sideways uh, for the whole race. So he got that nickname from there. But in reality, if you were to put him in a modern-day drift car and tell him to complete a lap, I think he would struggle quite a bit. So um, his drifting has, actually hasn't evolved much from the days where we were still drifting A80, A86s. Um, but I actually did have a chance to drive against him in a, I think it was a best motoring video campaign that we filmed out at Willow Springs when I was about 17 or 18 years old. But uh, it was a Formula Atlantic engine-powered Corolla, and uh, we were both racing for time at Willow Springs. Um, ultimately, he ended up beating me because he is you know, actual professional race car driver. Um, and I was just starting off in different forms of motorsports outside of just rally racing and drifting. So um, that was a great time. He's definitely a great human being, great race car driver, um, very inspiring, and um, yeah, definitely someone that I would look up to. When you are doing those uh, typical circuit racing events, do you find it's difficult to not slide the car around because that's what you're used to doing? Uh, are you tempted to give it a little bit too much throttle and kick the tail out, or...? Do you find it's easy to change that mindset and drive within the grip limits? <laughs> That's funny. When I first started, I was definitely tempted to slide the car out. Like, for example, I would go go-kart racing with my friends. And um, halfway through the race, I would get tired of, you know, trying to drive clean and fast. So I would intentionally kick the go-kart out. Um, but I guess, you know, as a competitor myself, it, it was only natural that I wanted to win i just had to win everything that i put my feet into so um throughout the years i i learned how to become a cleaner driver um except for the story of pike speaking you know 2014 obviously i was just having fun up there but yeah for sure i like to take on the challenge and you know make sure that i can perform to my best and go for the win so i guess to answer your question um, i'm not so tempted as much anymore but I for sure know how to control the car when the, the rear end steps out. Awesome. So Ken, what has been your biggest lesson you've learned since you've started racing professionally? Um, so, you know, racing is a, it's, it's basically a business, right? It's, it's all about, you know, maintaining relationships with your sponsors, your partners, your team. Um, and I learned throughout these years that human relations are really important into you know getting where you want to be in motorsports so a lot of people only see myself as a driver and you know the success that comes from a race car driver they don't really see what happens behind the scenes so um, it's really important to make sure that you also put your team on the pedestal or the same pedestal that you're on and especially on the podium 
and celebrate as a team. And you know what they say: if you win as a team, you also lose as a team. So it's always important to take care of your team. And of course, the fans that make everything happen for us. You know, the fans that come to the events um, and you know just support the sport of drifting and motorsports in general. It's really important to actually acknowledge that and yeah, just uh, appreciate everything that we have in in racing. When I first started, I, I felt like I was a little naive and didn't realize that it took so much manpower to make things happen. But as I got older, I started to realize, you know, it's not just myself you know, out there making the success or making things happen or winning, but it was also important that uh, we appreciate everyone and everyone that makes this possible for us. That's really true. And that's awesome that you gave a shout out to your team. Um, how many people is it consisted of? Who are your main helpers? Uh, this year I have, it's, it's a team of four, including myself. I have two mechanics and one spotter. Throughout the years with the Gritty Performance or even before that with RSR, we had a lot of uh, team members in our team. And so at some point we felt like, you know, some, some people's roles were kind of conflicting with others. So we started to downsize and ultimately now it's just four of us, but it's, it's varied anywhere from, you know, five, six, even sometimes 10 where we felt like it was too much to now four. So we're just, we're just trying to find what's most efficient um, through logistics, um, lodging, obviously having enough help and hands at the racetrack, um, but not being too crowded in our own pit space to where we're running a little bit inefficient. Mm -hmm. So are you the one also doing the business side, really like reaching out to the sponsors, or do you have people that help you with that as well? I do. Um, I actually do a little bit of both, but I do have a manager that handles most of that, uh, most of my relationships with our sponsors. But I found that it was kind of easier to work with the sponsors if I was a little bit more personal with them. And, you know, some of my sponsors do appreciate that. Um, but there are times when I kind of hand it off to my manager if things get a little too complicated or sensitive or if they're sensitive manner that I shouldn't really be putting my neck into. I'll let my manager handle that. But that manager is also my spotter um, who also travels with us. So he's always on deck uh, to take care of matters and situations when things arise. Awesome. It seems like you all wear many hats. We do. And to answer your question, <laughs> I do operate the team. I manage the team. I actually own the team. Wow. And uh, cool. I took ownership of my team Yeah, back in 2016 when my uh, main sponsor, Grady Performance at the time, decided to pull back a little bit just so they can focus on their business. And that gave me the opportunity to kind of take everything under my control and operate everything. So I'm actually team owner slash operator slash driver. How do you think things have changed for you being a team owner versus just being the driver? I love it. I mean, you know, there's a lot more responsibilities and not only do I have to focus on performing on track, but I have to, I also have to, you know, manage my team logistics to travel, even the food, hotel, lodging, um, planning of spare parts. There's a lot of things that I have to take care of before we even get to the venue. And then once we get there, it's not just about planning, you know, the night's dinner or the lodging or where we're staying, but also setting up the car to perform at its best um, and then actually going through to the event and winning. So 
it's a lot of work. Um, it's a lot of planning. It's definitely full time. Um, even throughout the weekends, I'm planning and strategizing our next move. So uh, it's stressful at times, but it's definitely rewarding. You mentioned your spotter a few times. Would you yep. mind expanding upon what the spotter actually does and the level of both skill and trust that you have to place not only in your own team, but also in your competitors on track in order to compete in tandem drift competitions? Right. So in professional drifting, uh, we have a couple things going on. So there's a panel of judges that judge our runs based on fluidity, commitment, which means you know how smooth you are throughout the designated drift course. And a commitment is if you're you know, basically man enough to stay on throttle when you're right next to the wall. Um, and then there's also style, uh, which is based on, you know, how basically how cool you are, how much uh, <laughs> smoke you have. Uh, there's angle, uh, which is judging how much, how sideways you are basically throughout the track. And then there's line. So the judges designate di different clipping points uh, throughout the course and we are supposed to hit those clips. Well, not physically hit them, but basically drive through those clipping zones and place our car to position them in that specific zone. And that's kind of how we gain points or lose points. Um, so that's uh, a run, but then there's qualifying. So they, they score you based on all those criterias, place you in a bracket of 32 drivers. And then once they have 32 competitors in that bracket, we go into a tandem battle uh, where we basically do the same thing as a lead car. You try to fulfill the entire judging criteria. And then there's a chase car this time that tries to mimic your run and stays close within proximity uh, to your vehicle. They'll do one lap and then they'll switch where the chase car now becomes the lead car and then repeat that same process. And then the judges will choose um, based on those two runs who performed a better lead run and a chase run. So that's drifting, uh, professional drifting in a nutshell. Now the spotter comes in, um, they're basically our eyes outside of the car. So they'll tell us you know, after a run, hey Ken, like you were about half a foot away from that clipping zone. Uh, you were a little shallow here, you were great here, you were offline here. Um, basically give us feedback and then uh, that gives us an opportunity to adjust our run going into the next couple of uh, runs. So spotters are really important. They're basically our eyes, out, out, our eyes outside and um, they play a huge role into how we perform throughout the weekend. So very important. And it's hugely different being the lead car or the chase car. When you're the lead car, you're just kind of drifting as best you can, you know, trying to carry that style and that speed. But talk a little bit about what it's like to be the chase car and have to follow the car in front of you and stay as close to their door as you possibly can. Yeah, I actually enjoy driving as a chase position because it's definitely more challenging. But when you get it right, it's really rewarding and it looks really cool. But if you guys have seen any footage, even on like YouTube or any other social platforms of the chase car, the chase car driving uh, through smoke, trying to mimic everything that the lead car is doing, you'll often find people asking like, hey, how do you see through all that smoke? You guys are in there for you know a pretty long time. And to answer your question, we, we can't see anything. Um, how we're pulling those runs off as a chase car driving through the smoke is basically muscle memory. So it's uh, you know the laps that we get throughout practice, we really have to force ourselves to remember 
what it feels like in that certain line or the area and to picture how long we're going to be in the smoke screen and then count actual seconds in our minds and then come out of the smoke. So we're pretty much blind as we get into the smoke and we're um, guessing or counting seconds in our head to make the next move. Wow, that is truly mind-blowing. Um, yeah, I also wanted to know, um, what is some advice you'd want to give kids or younger people that want to become a race car driver or are interested in racing in the future as well? I mean, I say, you know, I got a lot of people asking me, like, hey, how do I become a professional? Um, I think the more important question is, like, how, how do I find a way to you know, continue to have fun doing it in a cheap manner, and especially for drifting, because I get a lot of guys asking me, and these guys are the ones that have never even been to a drifting event or never driven a car or drifted a car anywhere, and they're skipping the process of learning, and they're asking to go straight into, you know, pro drifting. But the most important part is, you know, look for ways to make it affordable and also have fun doing it, because a lot of guys stress out at the track, you know, when they don't get it right, they get frustrated and and then they end up quitting. But I think the most important part is keep it fun. Um, there's a lot of cheap tires out there. There's really good resources to really make drifting really affordable and, of course, enjoyable. Yeah, that's really awesome. I know uh, there's a lot of costs associated with drifting, especially the tires and like you said, the more you can keep those costs down, the more accessible it is for people and, you know, the more the sport can grow. Absolutely. So you've had the opportunity to drive at some really iconic locales and some huge events. You mentioned Pikes Peak. Uh, you mentioned how special it was for you to drive your father's car up that track, up that course. But I wanted to ask, are there any other iconic locales you've driven at or iconic cars that you've driven that really stand out in your mind? Yeah, so now going back to the 2012 uh, Pikes Peak Hill Climb, um, Lexus actually was generous enough to lend me a LFA oh, wow. as a uh, <laughs> rental car for the whole week. So the race itself is actually 10 days. Um, and throughout the duration of my stay, they let me use an, I, uh, sorry, an LFA as a daily commuter to and from the hotel to the mountain and back and everything in between. So I took it around town in Colorado Springs to the local supermarkets, you know, Target, Starbucks. <laughs> had a lot of eyes on me, but it was definitely the highlight of that year's race for me. That is really cool. Wow. Which color yeah, is that one? Thing. So it was yellow. And wow. at the time, it was actually the highest mileage LFA. And at that time, when I had it, it had about 42,000 miles. Wow. Mm. Classic Lexus reliability right there. Yep. <laughs> Definitely can see why there were so many eyes on you in a yellow LFA. <laughs> <laughs> um, what do you like to do outside of racing? So I actually operate a shop in Temple City, California, which is about five minutes west of Irwindale Speedway. Um, if I'm not racing, I'm here at my shop building race cars, drift cars, or working on cars in general. And... A lot of people ask me, like, well, isn't there anything you do besides cars? And the simple answer is no. Um, I enjoy it so much, not just the driving part, but actually building them. 
and of making them perform on track and actually seeing them perform on track or seeing my work perform on track is a really enjoyable almost as enjoyable as actually racing them on track so yep so i think that we'll uh we'll start to wrap it up here we'll just leave you with one last big question mm -hmm. what is it about motorsport and drifting in particular that holds such an appeal for you what is it what is it about sliding a car around that you love so much um, well, drifting to me is, is extremely special because, for one, I, I feel like every time I get behind the car or behind the wheel, that feeling or that adrenaline never gets old and never it never goes away. It just continues to be you know very exciting. I just feel like the same adrenaline I get today while competing is that same exact feeling adrenaline that I got almost 17 years ago when I first started you know, sliding the car around. So, um, yeah, it's just something that I can't get away from, but it's just really special to me because it's something that gives me an opportunity to stay close with my father. And, you know, we both share that same passion in motorsports and rally racing. And even at one point he was competing with me in formula drift. So as fellow competitors, it's really cool to, you know, be off track and, you know, bond as father and son and talk about some of the challenges we had, some of the achievements, and just uh, hang out after the racetrack with my father. So it's definitely something that's uh, kept us close throughout the years. And of course, something that given us an opportunity to, you know, just share together and talk about. That sounds really special. That's awesome, Ken. Thanks for sharing your story with us. Absolutely. How can our listeners connect with you after this podcast? Yeah, well, uh, like everyone else, I'm very active on Instagram. Uh, I also have YouTube, Kangushi Motorsports. Uh, I'm also on Facebook, Twitter. Awesome. Yard, so, yeah. Awesome. Well, everyone, please follow Mr. Ken Gushi on Instagram and the likes. <laughs> I follow him. He has really great content. And we really appreciate your time, Ken. Thanks for letting us get to know you. And I appreciate it so much. Yeah, Let's Talk Shop, episode three. Thank you, everyone. Thanks so much. Thank you guys so much.